I am excited about this week's Border Chronicle podcast with border scholar Jenny Schumer, which in many ways is a follow-up to our discussion thread on wall sickness that took place on November 30th. If you haven't seen that thread, I encourage you to go back and take a look. There's a lot of really good information. And Jenny was one of the panelists. Jenny works at the Kate Hamburger Center for Apocalyptic and Post-Apocalyptic Studies at the University of Heidelberg. And besides being a border scholar, she also has a background in film and media studies. And here she brings all of that together. She looks at the mass fantasy often created by cinema or the media and how that often creates an impression that the border wall can save the world. Welcome to the Border Chronicle podcast, Jenny Stumer. It's really, really an honor and a pleasure to have you here with us today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, I first met you um, recently in Montreal. We were at a Border Walls and Borderlands conference there. You know, listeners probably uh, perhaps tuned into our discussion thread that we had last week on um, a psychological and mental dimensions of the border wall and border enforcement. And, um, and that was basically the panel that that Jenny, you were in, in, in Montreal. I thought it was interesting, your, your role in the panel, um, you know, there was, you know, people discussing um, the psychological impacts of, of the proximity to a border wall or, or living in a place where there's these really um, uh, strong divisions of enforcement. And I actually just want to name the title of, of your presentation that you did during the panel, which is the border wall imaginary at the end of the world. Very provocative. And I, I guess I just want to start there. What, what, what do you mean by the border wall imaginary at the end of the world? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess um, to give a little bit of context, so I, my own research was always also focused on the sort of psychological impact, perhaps um, a little less uh, cognitive psychology and more um, looking to the mediation. But um, the idea of the border wall imaginary at the end of the world comes out of um, a real interest in the way that um, borders play into collective imaginaries and and collective fantasies and 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 actually I'm I'm kind of convinced that these fantasies are really formative for the politics of of borders, but they're also kind of often overlooked. So when I talk about the border wall imaginary at the end of the world, I, I guess I'm trying to um, think about the border wall as a sort of um, fantasy that is materialized 
at a particular time that we find ourselves in, right? A particular mood and a particular atmosphere that we're seeing that is um, that that I would describe as a sort of end of the world mood, right? We're all kind of worried about climate change. We all have plastics in our blood. You know, there's all kinds of things that are going wrong, and people are increasingly invoking this idea of the end of the world or the apocalypse to come. And I guess my point is that border walls. Um, play a huge part in that in that imaginary, right? That they are kind of um, very formative for the way in which we, on the one hand, um, visualize the aesthetics of the end of the world, and on the other hand, how we, or uh, particularly in the West, how we imagine to respond to that. And um, if we kind of particularly look at climate change. Um, and and the way it is connected to a sort of end of world imaginary, then uh, the border walls, fences, borders, all of that technology plays a huge role in in sort of um, people invested in the idea of averting the catastrophe. And this is this seems to be very rarely about actually thinking about sustainability or solving the problems at hand, but instead it's all about building giant walls that hopefully um, uh, protect a particular privilege or a particular uh, way of life. So I, I kind of think of this as an infrastructure that kind of is meant to secure a future, but at the same time is completely archaic. Right, and this is trying to keep those structures in place that brought us here in the first place. So there's a particular kind of irony. And um, there are all kinds of these little paradoxes that you can identify in the border wall imaginary at the end of the world. But that's kind of where I'm coming from, I guess. Yeah, oh, I'm like thinking about how that sort of um, infrastructure or fantastical infrastructure, or I don't know how you want to put it. Um, it's something that almost feels manufactured. Um, what are some of the g- good examples that you have, like how this plays out? You know, is there like some movies that that you could point out that that really are great examples of how this sort of apocalyptic fantasy that ends in the border wall um, plays out? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, first of all, I really like fantastical infrastructure and um, also just kind of making that leap to film and looking at film. It's, it's really also to say, yes, there are sort of fantasies and there are fictional words, but they're completely formative for the way that we build our realities, right? So there's a sort of feedback loop um, between sort of fiction and reality that's quite interesting. Um, when I think of film, there's sort of two categories that I would sort of um, look at or think about. One is, as you say, the kind of film that really um, almost works as a mirror to that kind of border wall imaginary at the end of the world. So, so um, the, the fantasy that culminates in the border. I think um, for me, the um, most obvious example is World War Z. Um, where um, we we sort of have a zombie attack, which is obviously we we can read that very easily against climate change, pandemics, um, all the challenges that we face. Um, but uh, in in the film, Brad Pitt, who is you know the white protagonist, is going to save everyone by saving his family, <laughs> uh, uh, finds out that the only country that has sort of um, managed the threat is Israel because they build a giant wall around the entire country. Right, so uh, to, to keep out the zombies. And it's a quite impressive scene that I think most people will know where um, the zombies are trying to get over um, 
over the over the wall and and eventually they they succeed right so there is a kind of um, performance of that the, of that fear of the walls that are being torn down by you know zombies and whatever they they might might stand in for from viruses to migrants to you know uh, all kinds of um, threats so there, there there are a number of those films um, there's a recent TV show uh, on Netflix called dark where we have a nuclear apocalypse also culminates in the wall and then the wall becomes a sort of um, stage for um, uh, re reimagining politics after the disaster right to creating a kind of dystopian, um, society. So these these kinds of films, they're far and wide. It's like every time I have this conversation with someone, people will sort of throw in five films that they've seen where this actually happens. So it's <laughs> it's a kind of re reoccurring uh, topic. And um, so that's that's one side to look at because these are sort of the films that, that really, sometimes they really kind of seem to be very popular and banal in that sense, right? They're not like super deep uh, political movies, but they do tell us about uh, precisely the fantasies uh, that circulate around um, ideas of border walls as uh, protective and, and um, border walls as... Um, something that secures a particular kind of politics, even though we know that that's actually not true. Um, and and then there are other films that kind of work against that, which which may be even more interesting, right? So, so um, films that um, pick up walls and border walls in particular to actually kind of draw attention to um, maybe the sort of silent devastations of what it means to live in the shadows of walls, right? To kind of um, quietly subvert that fantasy by kind of um, using the wall as a, as a screen and, and, and kind of negotiating against it. So for example, I think of uh, as a beautiful um, American film called Beast of the Southern Wild, where we sort of have a giant levee wall at the center of the film, but we are kind of invited to look to the other side of the of the wall. Uh, or um, a really great Palestinian filmmaker, Elias Suleiman, who makes just wonderful movies that um, hardly ever feature walls, but when they do, they're sort of rendered absurd, and it's all about what kind of, you know, how life is impacted by, yeah, living in the shadows of walls and checkpoints. And these kinds of things. So I, I think there are these two sides of what film can do. It can kind of um, mirror this very regressive and reactionary fantasy, and it can also be a, a sort of tool to um, uh, kind of think about this in interesting ways and subvert it even. Yeah, I, on the, along those lines, I have a question for each of those two sides that you just mentioned. Um, for the first side, which is basically the kind of Brad Pitt you know, zombie, you know, fantastical border wall uh, scenario that you see play out in many movies, as you mentioned. Like, when you dig in to uh, documents, I mean, I've dug into documents from the Pentagon in the United States and the and the Department of Homeland Security about climate change and, and you know, over the years looked at many, many different assessments, you know, that officials have come up with it's interesting because when i read those assessments and they're talking about climate change they'll often go like there's one in particular that i'm thinking of it's a 2007 like book that's called climatic cataclysm and it pretty much came out of the u.s government um 
but it's book length and it goes into like different climate scenarios. But when you start reading the scenarios, it's almost like one of those movies that you're talking about. Um, like the one, there's one from 2003 that's called the uh, worst case scenario came out by the Pentagon. And they say, they say United States and Australia are the only two countries that could withstand uh, possibly the climate catastrophe. And then I can't, I'm paraphrasing, unfortunately. Um, then they went, they focused on the United States. We'll have to build up defensive fortresses. And then they say to stop, and this is a direct quote, unwanted starving immigrants. And then they describe where they're coming from, like basically Latin America and Caribbean. Um, and I can't help to think like there's like thinking about, go back to that term, fantastical infrastructure, right? Of that, of how these, how the fantasy is, or the mass fantasy is created, but then how it translates into these assessments or is it vice versa or what do you how do you make that how do you make does that make it easier to make such assessments than than to make the border enforcement policy prescription quote unquote to climate is that what it does or what do you how do you think when you look at that mass fantasy but going into mass reality yeah, I mean, that's such an interesting um, feedback loop, right? I, I, I mean, I've, I've read your book, Storming the Wall, and I, 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 I sort of thought, yeah, that, that's exactly that kind of dystopian um, fantasy playing out in policy, right? And I, I, I don't think it's a kind of linear thing. I think that they bounce off each other in, you know, intense ways. And the reason for that, um, I think, is that the wall is such a, it's such an archaic tool of you know colonialism of what politics even means how we understand politics in the west we understand it as something that's really spatial that begins with a wall with like a sort of demarcation and then we kind of fill it with all of these ideas of um um, um how we want to live and what the good life is and so on and um, when it comes to climate change, what is quite interesting is that there is, you know, there is no um, disguise of the fact in the West that uh, climate that there is a sort of imaginary where climate change is kind of equated with uh, climate um, migrants that is sort of um, overrunning. Uh, the country rather than, you know, a hurricane that <laughs> will destroy us. There's a sort of idea that, that people will just come and do that. And um, the threat multiplier, right? That's the, the, the term like it's not the hurricane. It's the people displaced by the hurricane that are the threat in that sort of militaristic term. Absolutely. I, I think that's a, such a powerful imaginary. And it's also kind of it really uh, it produces this analogy between people and waste. And I think if anything, it's really telling um, um, about the attitudes that, that persist about divisions in the world, right? And who counts as a human being and who counts as a sort of waste product that needs to be kept out. Um, and so I think that um, this, this fantasy structure, it, it works in two ways. Again, on the one hand, it really substantiates these policies. And there's also, you know, like a really, um, even for people who are skeptic about this, there's a really long and well-documented relationship between Hollywood and policy, right? And how, how there is a kind of um, going back and forth, a really conscious one even, between um, uh, Washington and, and Hollywood about sort of, um, you know, popularizing certain ideas. But then I think this also works uh, unconsciously in the sense that, that we're not always, or Hollywood might not always be aware, but it draws on a really old cultural imaginary of us versus them. 
And what better to um, make that visual than a giant wall? And that is true for um, a film setting as much as it is true for a policymaker. I mean, there is the whole, you know, we, we, we can sort of think about the whole appeal of Donald Trump build the wall where, you know, like um, it's kind of from a very practical sense, such a such a nonsense idea if you kind of think about the, the space and, and, and how it operates. But the literality is really the point. It is just kind of makes visual for people uh, a particular kind of politics um, of us versus them, a particular kind of uh, thinking about uh, protection and 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 sort of self-preservation and whatnot, but that itself, and that again, that's also not me. That has been really well documented, particularly in the United States and elsewhere in the West, is the foundation of Western politics. It's precisely how it came into existence. So if we now have this moment of end of the world or doomsday atmosphere, um, there is also a sense that these old structures are kind of falling apart and the way that they respond to that is by amping it up right so if we kind of think about um you know sovereignty being really a fantasy in the face of climate change right and 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 really kind of no actually we're all kind the hurricane doesn't care who you are and where you live and um, what your history is but there is a kind of fantasy that no, 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 we can hold on. We can hold on to this privileged position. This is a kind of natural position. Um, and so um, it's kind of amping up by um, building the wall and, and sort of visualizing this. And at the same time, it also actually tells us that it, it has always been a fantasy, right? It's, it's, not, it's not actually something to hold on to. Uh, I have a question too. Um, like one of the things... Well, one of the focuses that uh, one of my the things I focused on in journalism is is the border industrial complex, right? Look, you know, a lot of times in, when I look at our companies that are that are getting contracts, and then you know they're able to influence policy in capitals like Washington or other places. Um, and just thinking about how what you're saying, you know, because because you, you describe like the border wall itself being uh, a colonial product, right? And of what, of what, of colonialism. So you have that, you have the past or supposedly the past, I guess you could call the border wall neo-colonial, right? Or, or you have the past, but you're forging the future from the past. And I, I know you've made that point. I wonder if you could elaborate, you know, how, you know, in, in, into that part of what I would say, you know, plays a part in a, in a, in a, in a broader complex. Mm, yeah, okay, that's a, I mean, that is, um, so, so two things. So first of all, in order to, you know, if we want to stay really practical, you want to build the border wall, you need the support of a lot of people. That's still how democracy works. In order to get that, you need to tap into a particular imaginary. And, and, and one way is to kind of activate an appeal to the, to the, to the border wall imaginary. And the other way is uh, to, to kind of energize the way in which the border wall already taps into imaginations you know, that are racialized in and, and, and all kinds of ways. But um, <laughs> uh, one thing that you just, you just kind of mentioned, which, which also plays a role and which is often overlooked, is that these infrastructures, um, um, if we kind of think of walls as colonial infrastructures, right, um, they're also really about how we imagine the future. 
right? Like it's, it's just the absurdity. If you think about, you know, what you just described, there's a bunch of people in a room and someone says, oh, here are the problems. And this is, you know, what shall, what, what can we, you know, climate change is going to destroy the, the, the planet and what should we do? And then you just, the absurdity of someone raising their hand and saying, let's build a wall. Right. Let's do that. Like, and um, this 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 can only work if it already is an imaginary of, of some sort. But it's also it tells us something about the way in which these people imagine the future. And and first of all, it's a it's a it's a future that is only secure for some, and not for everyone. Right. There's always an inside and outside to, to this kind of imaginary. And the second one is that it is really. Um, really grounded in the past, really grounded in the past and that it, it is really meant to uphold a particular kind of hierarchy and a particular setup that has worked for precisely the people that are now making these decisions, right? Um, it's not really about imagining radical futures or new ways of living together or kind of um, thinking about community different it's it's really regressive in that sense it's desperately holding on um to to the way that the world was always ordered and which now some people perceive as as falling apart um so in that sense it, it is really a temporal structure I, I think i said the the wall is a temporal structure in that sense that it that it wants to um produce a future that uh, essentially uh, preserves the past. Yeah, um, that also uh, brings me to another question related to this, but um, moving more towards the the idea of resistance. Um, so during our discussion thread, and I encourage listeners to go back and check our discussion thread out that we had on the Border Chronicle um, on November 30th, you had many really interesting things that you said during that. Um, and one of them was um, looking at the border wall, but the idea of the border wall is a paradox, right? Um, that, oh, like you have, you know, you're talking about the psychological dimensions of the, of the border wall and the anxiety or the narrowness or the border wall disorder, as Kenneth Madsen would say, or the wall sickness, right? Is, is producing anxiety and then, and then, the the mass imagination, as you put it, you know, the mass fantasy of the border wall alleviating anxiety. And you have this like this paradox. But you you uh, mentioned uh, like the border wall itself is a paradox. Like, it, you know, what what could divide us actually could also bring us together. It could be it could contain the material of its own demise, you might be able to say. I'm, I'm wondering if you can expand on that. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of always what has sort of fascinated me about the border wall or, or where I'm where I see a, a, an opportunity for resistance is that border walls right they cannot separate people without also putting them into contact right it's just this glaring monument that um, also reminds us of the other side all the time it's uh, it's the it's actually the threshold it is the point of contact right as the point of separation is the point of contact and um, and and this kind of paradox that uh, that it's sort of trying to hide something, but at the same time always reveals something. That paradox just moves through layers and layers, right? So I think of the border wall as a medium, in that sense, right? So so something that is built to protect or to hide 
but cannot help but to also project and reveal. And that's precisely its, its, its weak point, right? So when we're sort of talking about um, this border wall, that's why I talk about the border wall imaginary, um, the border wall imaginary being a really complex thing that is, you know, subsumed with racist fantasies, with gendered fantasies. When in the, in the chat yesterday, we had this sort of hyper-masculinity uh, pop up when we talked about the border patrol and so on, a uh, particular division of the word, a particular order. And these are all things that are often really unsaid in political discourse. They remain silent, right? But they're completely operative to the logic of the system. Um, what the border wall does, it's in trying to protect this, it also makes it completely visible. So it produces an opportunity to engage with that. And that's, and that's, that really strips it of part of its power. Um, and um, this is something that artists, for example, have long understood, right? That's why, um, why the border wall is so irresistible as a canvas or as a screen for art is not just because it's a giant wall, but it's also because it mediates uh, the very politics on which it is built, politics that are meant to stay hidden. And so there's a, there, it gives us a chance to encounter this and to, to, to make it obvious, right? Nothing, nothing tells us as much about the politics of Donald Trump as the, the very idea of the wall, right? So there is a, there is a kind of opportunity, I, I think, um, not just for artists, but for everyone to um, to to sort of engage uh, with the kind of politics that that actually stands for. One thing would be is like, okay, so we have a wall. What does that say about the way we imagine the future? And is that actually something that we all want to sign up for if we kind of consider that this future is built on the very past that has put us in the situation in the first place, right? So there's, a, there's also a kind of... Um, a, a way in which the internal logic of the wall crumbles, crumbles in the moment that you're, do you kind of make these processes obvious or you engage with them. And so that's kind of um, an, an interesting way to look at the wall um, because it makes it a sort of a medium of its own interruption. And on a very, very basic level, that really functions yesterday, we talked a lot about how the, um, the power that is exercised with the wall is really about um, invisibility, internalization, um, you know, like uh, one thing that I didn't have a chance to bring up yesterday, but, but, but what I always found really intriguing a story about the, the Berlin Wall was, um, so from the Eastern side, it was prohibited to depict the wall and pictures or to, to, to sort of mediate it, to film it, to photograph it, right? So it had to remain uh, invisible because that's part, that's part of the power that it exercises. And that's not different in, in, in any of the contemporary contexts where we see that. So the moment you make it obvious, the moment you kind of point your finger at it, you, um, you take some of its power away, I think. Yeah, that reminds me of um, um, a Palestinian artist who I've I've had much contact with. His name is Khaled Jarrar, and um, he's done a lot of work on border walls in Palestine and also in the U.S. Um, he's got. I would suggest anyone go and look up Google Khaled's ladder. Um, one of his main things is to your point is um, that he looked at the materiality of the border wall, like the concrete wall in Jerusalem. 
he goes and takes a sledgehammer to it to, cr to crumble parts of it. And he's like, this material can be used for something else. So what he does, what he, he, he go for like 30 minute stints and just slam a sledgehammer into the concrete wall. Then he'd melt down the concrete and then he'd, he'd make sculptures turning the wall into something else. Then he came to the U.S.-Mexico border and he took a bollard from the wall and he pried it loose like a loose tooth. And then managed to get it across. He got it, did this in Mexico, managed to get it across the United States, but then chopped it up and turned it into a ladder. Anyhow, so like, yeah, that I think that's um, might be leading to my final question. You know, like, you know, looking at, you know, all that you're saying and looking at the, the wall as possibly, you know, as this obtrusive. Um, symbol of exclusion and brutality on one hand, but on the other hand, a place of connection and even subversion, right? What do you think? How do we subvert? What do you? How do you see that that part of it happening in this sort of ingrained mass fan? You have this ingrained mass fantasy. How do you de-ingrain it or dismantle it or however you want to put it? Um, what What are your thoughts on that? Um, so, I mean, without, you know, wanting to overstate it, right? So obviously there's policies and, and, and all, all of these things, but, you know, it, it's vital to remember that they are made by people and they are made by people who have support of um, large groups of people. So um, there, are, there, are, there are certain things that can be achieved in the realm of, of, of artistic engagement like that. So one thing would be um, the wall really erases certain kinds of people. Right. And and one thing to subvert it is the way that people write themselves back into the space. Um, I think graffiti is such a powerful, um, you know, example of that. Sometimes, you know, if you go to um, Jerusalem, a lot of what you see on the wall is really just people signing their names or really sort of banal in terms of an ob obvious uh, political message. But it is about writing yourself back into the space. The other thing is that um, artworks, like the one that you just um, described, what they really do, they um, they generate community, right? So people come together and they look at this, and often there is a kind of um, atmosphere that develops, right? Like a sort of a thrill of um, you know having 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 somehow subverted the space or having reclaimed it or having uh, produced um, uh, a sort of a, a, a monument of resistance, how, how, however small. And, and that's a way of bringing people together. That's how political resistance is, is sort of born and, and, and sustained, right? So um, again, I think I said yesterday, there are so many people who are resisting this, right? There are so many people with really interesting ways of thinking about how to deal with the challenges that we face as a planetary community. And um, um, often the more interesting of these approaches understand that there is a connection between climate change, migration, colonialism, right? That these are not separate issues, but that they come together. And um, where we use the wall as a medium because it, it does um, bring together these issues anyways, um, we, help, we help kind of, I think, substantiate the imaginary of these movements and kind of, you know, also show people to each other that, you know, that you're like-minded and that um, 
you know, that you're not alone and in, in sort of uh, thinking about a particular space. So I think that is all uh, very important and very vital. And when we, we sort of think about film, yes, there is a sort of blockbuster, um, <laughs> blockbuster regressive uh, idea, um, but film has also always produced um, really powerful counter narratives. And um, if we believe, as many people do, that, that, that politics are really um, built on these narratives, then it is absolutely vital to, to produce uh, counter-imaginaries and counter-narratives. And it's not just because sometimes, you know, people are like, oh, it's just art, it's just film, what, what's it going to do? But um, these things are really not separate. And so uh, every little piece matters, I would say. Well, thank you very much, Jenny. We really appreciate having you on the Border Chronicle podcast. Um, do you have any last words you might want to say? And um, could you tell us how people could find you and find your work and and um, that sort of thing? Um, yeah, so I'm, 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 I think um, my final word would be that, um, again, mediation is a paradox, right? Like it, it can sort of tear people apart, but it can also create entire worlds and bring people together. And I think it's important to look at what, um, what survives in the cracks of the walls, right? Like what is, you know, um, what, what gets, what gets past it. And that also always happens. I'm always reminded, I forgot the name, but there's a photographer who did amazing, um, photo series of, you know, animals slipping through the cracks of the U.S.-Mexican border wall. And it's just a, such a powerful symbol for, for what is happening on the ground. So I, I, I think um, that's something to keep in mind. And yeah, if you want to find my work, um, look up the Center for Apocalyptic and Post-Apocalyptic Studies. I've also written a book called Wildlife, uh, Concrete Cinema Art, where I talk precisely about um, these things and, and sort of talk through, you know, particular artworks and films that I think are really particularly strong in that regard. So if you're interested in that, look me up. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk about this. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview was edited by me, Lily Clark. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It'll help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com. Thank you.